0: This is Body Talk, where we explore your inner universe. Hi everybody, this episode is a special one. And I know I say that a lot, but this time I really mean it. Uh, We're going to be going back to, or back through, I should say, my archives. And I'm going to share with you a lecture by the one and only and the late Tom Finley. This was a lecture that had a profound influence on my scientific thinking, and it's one I go back to over and over again throughout the year. This took place at the very first fascist summer school at Ulm University in 2010, and it's just as relevant now as it was then. Plus, you also get to hear a really excellent Q&A with the audience. And I hope you can appreciate not just Tom's humor, but his generosity of spirit and his free-range, yet very concise mind and way of thinking. So join me right now for a very special Body Talk with Tom Finley.
1: So just... Just a word of my background. I've been involved in research projects with a lot of people. I started a research department in a rehabilitation hospital in 1988. We had three people. When I left there in 1996, we had 60. 30 of them were not on the hospital payroll. They were volunteers from elsewhere, just working there because they liked to work there. when I left there, I stopped counting, but I'd been involved already in 200 grant proposals. And that was 15 years ago. So I've done a lot of proposals with a lot of people. I sit on review committees, so I read proposals as they come in. And you get a sense for you know what's fundable and what isn't fundable. In the United States, the funding rate varies between 10% and 50%. Depending on the agency, and clearly the art is to find the 50% ones uh, and apply for those. Don't leave any of those, you know, any of that ripe fruit unpicked. Uh, the other thing that's very important to keep in mind is that grants come in different sizes. You can get a $10,000 grant, 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 a $100,000 grant, a million-dollar grant. A million-dollar grant is about twice as much work as a $10,000. Which one should we write? (laughs) Except that to do a million dollar grant, you have to do it right because people won't give you a million dollars if you're making a few mistakes that are obvious They'll say no. So you have to know how to write it. You have to work with people who know how to write it. But it's really not much more work than a small grant. So my advice is hook up with people who write big grants and go for big grants. What you need, however, is pilot data. So that's part of what this lecture is going to be about, is how do you get pilot data to show that what you're trying to do has a good chance of succeeding? Because it's a million dollar bet. And some of them work out, but some of them don't work out. And the agencies like to know what they're betting on is likely to work. You can't do research without measuring. If you can't measure it, you can't research it, period. It's as simple as that. Now, measurement can be a number of things. Words, you can write words down. You can use them as a measure. So you can analyze the words. So I mean, there's lots of ways you can develop a measure. But if you don't have something to analyze, it's not research. That's the definition of research, is you have an idea, and you collect some information, and you study it. But why do we do it? Well, some of us are clinicians. We want to prove that we're right. That's nice, because we might not be. We might want to improve our treatment to make it more efficient or more effective, or to improve the way we teach. If we're scientists, we want to explore hypotheses, to develop theories or models, or suggest the next study. Now, I suggest that every one of you is a scientist. When a patient walks into your office, you make a hypothesis about what is wrong with that patient. It may be called a diagnosis, it may be called a wild ass guess. <laughs> Nonetheless, you have to do something. You have to make a decision. Here's what I think is going to make the most change in this person. And you try it. And you either are successful or you're not successful. So every time you see a patient, it's hypothesis, it's some data collection, and it's some analysis. It's it's no different except it's systematized in science. So you start with a clinical observation. You notice a positive change in the client. What might be happening? And it's very important to keep all these steps in mind. First, nothing. You're fooling yourself, and your client will eventually leave unhappy. Or, nothing's happening. You're fooling yourself. Your client's fooling themselves. And they're going to keep coming back week after week after week for a totally ineffective treatment. But they're happy about it. Or there's no therapeutic response from what you did, but the general healing response, called the placebo, is taking place. Maybe there is a direct response going on, but it's not what you thought is. I mean, the patient's getting better, but it has nothing to do with your theory. You may be doing something very good that you you aren't even aware of. It may be that there's a direct response, but it's not as good as it might have been. Or the last one, yeah, it really is what you think is going on but that's not at the bottom of the list. And you have to rule out the others above before you know that the one on the bottom really is true. So let's talk a little bit about the natural healing response. Because again, you have to to understand that and use it. Any clinician who doesn't use it is missing half of their treatment effect. And there's no reason to miss half of it. It's free. Use it. So what are the the elements of it? And the practitioner believes in it. (laughs) The client believes in it. It's technically a little complicated. The treatment has some direct physiological effects. Two pills are better than one. One surgery is better than one pill. Once elicited, the placebo response can be augmented by drugs. It is a real response. It is a real physiological response. Proglumide, which is available here in Europe, it's a cholecystokinin inhibitor, can augment the placebo response. It's a real thing. Not everybody responds in the same way, but it is a real response. So, what I've learned when patients come into my office, they expect to do the walk, you know, the Rolfing walk. Walk, you know, let me analyze you. If they come in the office and I know what they have right away, I still have them do the walk because they expect that. It's a little more complicated when they do that. I, I started doing a couple of people just get on the table. Didn't work as well, because they expected, oh, the doctor will understand the way I move from the way I walk, and in 10 seconds, he knows everything that's going on, and then I get that on the table. But if I left that part out, it didn't work as well. So I leave it in now. We we think of science as randomized clinical trials. That's a a mistake. There's a, a large number of scientific designs that are not randomized clinical trials what are the limits of the randomized trial is that the treatment is standardized. And as we know, we generally don't standardize treatment on our clients. So you're testing an artificial construct already. It reduces the placebo effect because when the patients come in, they're told half of you are going to get a real treatment and half of you are going to get nothing. So they have an expectation that half of them are going to get nothing. And the statistics generally used are limited to linear effects with uh, the bell-shaped distribution, and you have to do all kinds of things if the data isn't oriented that way. So there are some some strong limits there. But what I'm encouraging you to do is go beyond the randomized clinical trial, because that's expensive and that's harder to do. Develop a model of what you think is happening. Measure intermediate outcomes, in other words, Patients with rheumatoid arthritis will benefit from a one-month stay using <coughs> therapy and Rolfein. But let's measure some intermediate measures. Let's measure range of motion. Let's measure uh, muscle strength. Let's measure exercise capacity. Let's measure quality of life. There's all sorts of things you can measure in the interim which go along with your overall goal. And if your overall goal is improved and the intermediate measures have improved, you're likely to have shown what you you want in the way you want
2: to.
1: I also encourage you to do regression analysis. We're often taught in school to do analysis of variance. Regression analysis is mathematically equivalent, but it gives you a lot more information. So if you've been in a school training where they've taught you to do analysis of variance, learn regression, and you can have it give you the output in an analysis of variance table, but you can learn a lot more from it as well. And there's some statistical programs that work very well, graphically, that show you what's going on. The other thing is is you need to control for investigator bias. Now, what does that mean? It means that if I think something is going to happen, I will see it, whether it's there or not, particularly if I'm measuring the outcome and I know which group has been treated and which group has not been treated, I'm more likely to round the number up in the treatment group and round the number down in the non-treatment group, or all sorts of things go on. And so whoever is measuring the outcomes in your trial needs to, to not know which group the patients are in. But even more than that is you have to take steps to maintain the blinding of the observer. That is the key characteristic of a well-done study. Fewer than 20% of the studies will tell you how they maintain the blinding between the treatment groups. That is the key characteristic of a well-designed research project. I look for that. If it's not in there, I go, sorry, they don't know what they're doing. They're not getting a million dollars. Very simple. Even in something as physics. Blinded trials are important. The best study for the mass of the electron was done. The, the researcher gave, told his machinist, make me a part that's about uh, an inch, but don't tell me the exact dimensions. He may, had his equipment together. He took all his measures. And two years later, he took it apart, so he couldn't collect any more data. And then he went back to his machinist and said, now give me the dimensions. And he calculated the mass of the electron, and nobody's ever gotten a better result. Because he knew that he would be biased in terms of what he was going to expect to find. And this was a way to totally prevent him having any bias at all. And nobody's done any better than that. So we're pushing new horizons with what we do with fashion research, clearly. But there are dangers to that. Let me go back 100 years to the early 1900s. Physicists were discovering new things. X-rays were discovered. That's a great discovery. N-rays were discovered. N-rays? What are n-rays? Hundreds of papers were published in physics journals on n-rays. N-rays don't exist. They never have existed. They never will exist. They were fooling themselves, and the journals, and the peer reviewers. So what happened? How, How could that happen? Well, it's happened more than once. As a matter of fact, as I said, scientists will study anything. So scientists have studied the science of no science. (laughs) They call it pathological science. (laughs) And there's papers published on pathological science. There's papers published on anything. Um, And so they looked for patterns to see what happened time and again when these things happened. So n-rays were one, cold fusion is probably a more recent phenomenon. And there's others. So, this is the study of phenomena in physics found later not to exist. The measurement is at the limit of human perception. Isn't that where we are a lot with our clients? You know, kind of, it's subtle stuff. The theory is at the limit of human knowledge. Yeah, that's kind of where we are. The results are not dose dependent. You yeah, sometimes I can, one treatment just kind of does everything. Sometimes it takes ten, but I can't always say ten is better than one. The theory is modified as we go along to explain our results. Yeah? Eventually the theory collapses. Well, let's hope not, but it could. So we just need to be aware that, you know, we're pushing the territory, and we might as well learn from others so we don't make the same mistakes. So you need to measure. So I'm going to treat you a little bit. You've got to use whatever tools you have to make some measurements here. So an example here, some of the measures I have, on the left is a machine for measuring balance. You stand on that. You sit on a force platform. It measures you know the, the direct forces down. But as you move back and forth, it measures shear or sliding. Now, if you took that person and you put a hole on the background here, you turn them sideways and balance the table on that fourth platform, you could do manual therapy on them and you'd measure pressure and shear. So that's what I did. And uh, we actually have data on how much pressure and shear is being applied. That's when Robert came to visit me five years ago. We did that project. and Eventually, we got the the award for the best paper in the American Osteopathic Journal for the results that came from that, which basically said, when you're pushing on the tensor fascia, a lot of that heavy stuff, or the plantar fascia, you are not pushing hard enough to deform it. If you put all your body weight on two fingers, you could start to deform that. But when you're pushing on the fascia around the face, you are indeed well within the physiological range. On the right, we have a cushion. Uh, It's about the thickness of a handkerchief. You put it on a wheelchair, and you can measure the pressure. But if you drape it over a person, and then you do your manual therapy, you can measure the pressure there as well and this is just an example of the kind of data output you get. Um, there's a darker <laughs> line. the darker line the darker the and redder the line, the greater pressure. it just shows manual therapy pressure in, in different areas, um, the shoulder on the left, the foot on the right, and the sensor pressure bottom there on the bottom. and in all of them you get to brown, which is here, it's all about the same level of pressure. As, as clinicians we treat people that come in with acute back pain and very commonly it's a twist. You're sitting in your car, you reach in the back seat to get a hat and it, it gets you. So I went to my mathematical colleague and said, why is twisting a problem? So, this is using existing data. We model the disk in compression and bending. We model the disk in compression and twisting. Because that's the way we are. When we're, you know, our our disks are under compression, every time we're sitting or standing, the disks are being compressed. We can either then bend or we can twist. And it turns out that it responds very differently. If you twist 10 degrees, the disk is actually very soft. It, It goes easily. If you bend 10 degrees, it takes a lot of force to bend it. So it doesn't take very much force to rotate the disk. It takes a lot more force to bend it. And depending on how fast you do it, you get more or less forces. And depending on whether the force is ramping up in a linear way or going up and then loving off in a more parabolic way, you actually, the, the parabolic, the force rises faster, but the peak is lower than if it goes up linearly. So again, that's the way we work manually. We apply force and then we kind of level off at the end. And so we've learned intuitively to apply forces in a way that actually lower the, the peak response wherever we're, we're working. Uh, and that's, We find that mathematically as we do our different models, that the parabolic with the leveling off always minimizes the, the tissue pressure. So this is where the theory is now coming back to support our hypothesis about what are we doing when we work with our hands, which leads us to have a little more confidence that we got it right. You know, we did figure out what was going on. And this, this is, again, just shows uh, the difference between the linear and the parabolic in terms of, of peak response. Uh, the bending moment here, of course, is, is about four or five times higher uh, than the twisting moment to get the same 10 degrees of motion. So that's the kind of thing you can do when you develop a theory that's based on your observations. So that's what you need in a research grant. You can't just say, here's my hypothesis. Hypotheses don't exist in a vacuum. You have to kind of put things around the hypothesis. So what I'm going to do is, go through this little workbook with you to describe some of the various projects. And some of you have already filled them out. And so the first thing I'm going to say is you have to write down your ideas. You can't just talk about them. And those of you who've written them down realize that It gets really hard when you write it down. It's really easy to talk about it, where things just come, but then we write it down. Oh, well, do I really mean that? And so it's the same thing when I listen to your ideas. You're talking about it, yeah, it it sounds reasonable. You call up the grant officer at the National Institute of Health and say, I've got a project on this. And he says, yeah, it sounds reasonable. He says, send me your abstract. The next step is you've got to put it in writing. Because if it's not in writing, it doesn't exist, as far as science goes. When we do research in the institutional review boards, we look at risk versus benefit. Are the risks, do they outweigh the benefits of a research project? If you don't publish it, there is no benefit. Therefore, the risks outweigh the benefit, period. Now, yes, I have data that I've never published. We all do. Um, But I want to encourage you, when you collect data, to do it in a way that you aim to publish it somewhere. So there are journals uh, which publish just about anything. And as you are designing your study, you need to think of the end point where I'm going to publish it, because the kinds of study you do depends on your audience. Who's interested in the study? And that's why, as you go through the research guide, the first point is to select a general question. You're not even down to the hypothesis, but a general question. And so let's start with, here's a general question. What are the effects of structural integration on sleep disorders? That's a good question. And you can't do research without some resources. So you've got to think, right at the beginning, what do I need? Well, you're going to need patients. You're going to need space. You're going to need practitioners. And you need somebody to collect the data. And what's not down here is you're going to need somebody to analyze the data. Because that's a separate process in itself. But the next part, then, is search for related work. Because that's the whole point of science, is to build on other people's information. So where is related work? Well, I happen to know that Christopher Moyer did a meta-analysis of massage therapy about five years ago. And in there, at the very end, there's a list of a few of the massage therapies and how they've affected sleep. Now, that's not structural integration, but it's close. So that's a good place to start. Now, it was published in Psychological Reviews. That's not where you're going to publish a paper on effects of structural integration on sleep disorders. So that doesn't help you there. But at least it, it gets a start, and you go back to some of the other studies. That's what I mean about searching for related work. Now, there's a lot of work on sleep disorders, there are a lot of studies on sleep disorders in veterans with post-traumatic stress disorder and people with fibromyalgia. You know, you name it, there's a lot of studies on sleep <coughs> disorders. And there are sleep disorder clinics <coughs> that have specialized equipment where you go in and you spend the night there. And they measure how well you sleep. Um, they also then have questionnaires. And so what you want to do is find a study on, Effects of melatonin, effects of you know barbiturates, you name it, on sleep. So you find somebody else who's already published a study on sleep, and you look at their methods, and you copy them. Why not? You know, as 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 you were, I heard earlier. You know, if you if you copy from one plagiar, one person, it's plagiarism. If you, copy from 10, it's analysis, and if you copy from 100, it's genius. <laughs> so you copy from it. I mean, that's why they published everything. They published so you could replicate their study or do something differently. Preferably when you find the study, you look at the bottom, which says, study was funded by. And it tells you, and if it's the National Institute of Health, great, okay. so. Lots of people looked at the study before it was done. They liked the design. So if you're going for funding, that's a good design to copy. As a matter of fact, look at the authors. Call them on the phone. Almost every scientist will answer the phone. And if you ask them a question about their project, they will talk a long time, because they're really happy. I mean, They spend a lot of time on that. And they don't get very many questions about their study. So you can talk to them. What you'll also find is that bench scientists don't have access to patients. They're always struggling to get people into their laboratory. You have patients. They might even want to work with you. That's a, that's, that's a, a strong possibility, to try to start to form the linkages between clinicians and scientists. Now, I happen to be fortunate where I live in the Veterans Administration Hospital, we have computerized records. So I'm doing a study of veterans with post-traumatic stress disorder, and my record department gives me a list of 5,000 people in my hospital who have post-traumatic stress disorder. Phone numbers and addresses. And I'm allowed to send them letters saying, I have a project going on, would you like to come in? but most of us don't have that kind of access to patients. Most researchers are struggling to try to, you know, you go to a clinic, you try to recruit here, they're busy, you know, you can't do that. So I think you'll find you have a major strength in your clinical population. Use it. So let's look here at some of the questions you think are, already answered by previous research. What is the average effectiveness of sleep disorder medications? All right, so there's a lot of medications on the market. You might also want to look to see, well, so what's the effectiveness of a placebo? I mean, it's going to be effective. The question is, how effective is it? Because you're, that's what you're fighting against, to show that your structural integration treatment, is it better than a placebo, or is it just a fancy placebo. I mean, there's nothing wrong with a fancy placebo because patients are better at the end than they were at the beginning. But it's good to know what you're doing. And they may have a better posture, they move better, so they may have got some other benefits besides the sleep benefits. Let me stop for a moment and kind of go around the room and get a few other suggested research ideas. And the reason I want (coughs) to do that is Somebody asked Linus Pauling, how did he come up with so many good ideas? And his answer was, I threw away a hundred times as many bad ones. You keep coming up with ideas, throw out, throw them out, come up with more, throw them out. And as you're developing a research project, it's going to grow, it's going to grow, it's going to grow. And then you've got to narrow it down. And then it's going to grow, it's going to grow, it's going to grow. And then you narrow it down and it's, it's going to grow, and it's going to grow, and narrow it down. And about the third or fourth round of this, you're now going in a direction that you're pretty comfortable with. But if you start off the first direction, it's like if you take the first bus that comes to the hotel, it might get you here, but it might not. And you might discover later you have to get, a go- get off and go back and start over. So don't get on the first bus. Don't do the first idea that comes to your head. Think about it. Develop it before you do it. As the old, the old adage in, in carpentry is, measure, measure once, cut twice. Measure twice, cut once. I say the same thing for research. Design it once, do it twice. Design it twice, do it once. Go through the design process a couple of times before you actually collect the data, and you'll, you'll save yourself a lot, of, a lot of trouble. So who wants to raise a research idea? Yes? The effects of stretching on um, um, subjects with known height loss. The effects of stretching on subjects with known height loss. That's a, that's a good With known height loss. Patients who have lost height stretching on them. Now, that's, it, that's a nice idea because you've limited your population. There are a lot of people who are concerned about height loss. There is no treatment for it that I'm aware of. And you might be successful, in which case, you're <coughs> off in a new direction. So it's a very promising area. And I can tell you right now, you know, that's a promising idea. It's an intriguing idea. Uh, the grant reviewers will go, huh, never thought about that. Yeah? Uh,
3: the structural
0: relationship between trigger points and the
1: The The structural relationship between trigger points and the myofascia. That's a broad concept. In chronic pain
3: patients.
1: Well, okay, in chronic pain patients. Okay, so that narrowed it a little bit. (laughs) 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 The the problem is, and and that's one that it's amorphous. And reviewers know that, you know, histologic studies haven't shown anything. So how can there be a structural relationship between a, non, a non-entity? So you're fighting uphill already with that, which is OK. Because if you have some pilot data that shows a relationship, they'll be intrigued. But you've got to have some pilot data, or they're going to go, you know, show me a little more information. And they're going to be very suspicious of your pilot data. And that's okay, but, you know, different ideas have, have different kinds of, of, of put it different When you write a research proposal, the reviewers volunteer their time to read them. They may get paid $100 a day for the time they actually meet to discuss them, but the time they spend reading it is their leisure time. So, they're sitting in the bathtub at 10 o'clock at night, zipping through the proposal. And it's got to jump out of the page, and it's got to catch their attention, and it's got to keep their attention. So, and, and they have their own internal biases. So it's helpful to know who's going to be reviewing it. You know, that, that's part of the art. If you submit to the National Institute of Health, they publish their review committees. So you know which study section it's going to. You look to see, who's going to read my proposal? What did they write about? What are their favorite papers? You know, stick them up front. You know, <laughs> so you can show that you're familiar yeah. with the area. That's part of it, the the grantsmanship trick. But another idea.
0: Yeah, in a population of chronic pain patients. How many
1: have a displaced tailbone or a kidney tosis, and
0: what is the effect of treatment
1: on these two populations? Displaced tailbone or uh, kidney tesis. kidney. Tesis. Descended kidney, okay. So, and, and how does treatment of those affect their symptoms? That's intriguing. Um, you don't have, I don't suspect there's a lot of information out there on either one of those, but there's also not a lot of prejudice that those things might not be affecting. And if you had some pilot data that says 10, 20, 30, 40 percent or whatever of people have those things and that treatment, if, and if you can measure the tailbone and the kidney position and you can treat them and show that those things go back into position and the extent to which they go back into position correlates with the extent of their improvement, you're, you're well on the way. If, on the other hand, you treat them and they get better and some go back into position and some don't, you scratch your head going, hmm, you know, am I, yes, I'm treating them and they're getting better, but it may not be the kidney that was causing the problem in the first place. And probably what you'll find is you'll treat people and, you know, 50% will get better and and 80% of those, the kidney will will move toward the right place, and 20% of them will get better, and the kidney won't move at all. You scratch your ear going, okay, so now it works on a subgroup of patients, and, and, and then you learn you know, which ones it works on. The other, it was working, but it could have been the placebo effect, or it could have been that your treatment you know, affected you know, the lumbar fascia, which was really the problem, not the kidney. And the kidney was descended because the lumbar fascia was pulling it down, and some people it got to be pulled down and some people it didn't. So, you know, you need to think of alternative explanations. So that's the second part, is you have a theory, you have a hypothesis, but what are other ways of explaining the results you might be getting? Particularly, what are other ways your grant reviewers might explain your results? And lay them out. Say, well, I thought about this and I decided this was not for the following reason. I thought about this and decided not for the following reason. So you put a sentence in saying, yes, I thought about it. Because otherwise, a grant reviewer will say, it's an interesting idea, but but why aren't they doing these other measures? Because they could be just as plausible. So you're stopping it before the problem starts. So a little bit of, of alternative explanations is very important as you're developing your project. And that, again, puts your idea in the context, the larger scientific context. Other, yeah. I
2: just have a question. Yeah. Um, you know, when, when you're doing something you want to create a study, you want to narrow it down to something, you know, basic, but if all of the symptoms of all of the things you're working on are relatively the same, like chronic inflammation, what, how would you determine the way, like for me, you know, with what I do is, um, you know, would, would, I, would I do a study on something as simple as foot pain, people who have like something like plantar fasciitis? Even though people with diabetes have foot pain and doing the treatment actually eliminates some of the symptoms, the question is, like, how would you determine how to define the study to something, you know, that's broad enough, like inflammation, like reducing inflammation across the board of any kind of issue, um, but then determining which issue you want to focus on the most, or do you? Like, I mean, is it, you know, doing something for diabetes, doing something for plantar fasciitis? You get what I'm saying? Yeah,
1: yeah. (laughs) Um, it's always a fine line between defining the patient population so rigidly that you know exactly what you're dealing with, but who cares, because the general, there's not very many of them out there in the general population, and having generalizability. And if you haven't tested different types of people, you don't know whether it generalizes to them or not.
2: I, just saying, I mean, like, that's what I'm saying, you know, people have the same symptoms, but different,
1: different reasons why, whether from cancer, diabetes, overweight, you know, whatever, overactivity, you know, like the symptoms the same, foot pain, slow back pain. It's right, right. Um, generally, reviewers don't like you to mix apples and oranges, yeah. even though they're both round.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: They'll both roll across the floor. You know, if you have a treatment to to deal with rolling across the floor, it doesn't matter if we use an apple or an orange, but reviewers like you to restrict to one or the other. So you have to have a very good reason for expanding beyond. There are a lot of diabetics. So diabetic foot pain would not be a bad place to start, for example, Um, or non-diabetic foot pain. But diabetic people probably respond differently than non-diabetic. They might not to your treatment, but you've got to convince the reviewer why you can combine them. And sometimes what, what, what's easier is to get a grant for diabetic and foot pain. Now, if you're convinced that your treatment will work on non-diabetics just as easily, you test some non-diabetics, but you don't put it in your grant. And then you can publish it, and now there's scientific literature that diabetics <clears throat> and non-diabetics respond similarly. But you got funded for the diabetics, and you just did the non-diabetics kind of on your own time. And anyway, that's perfectly allowed. We do it all the time. Yeah, that's, that's kind of how <clears throat> you deal with that. Well,
3: um, for example, if you wanted to uh, um, say that the, what's the effect, for example, of Cold on an inflamed fascia. I mean, that's a that study would have, a, I guess, two parts because then you first have to determine the parameters in terms of what are you looking for, how do you, what are your markers for inflammation okay. on the fascia? No, that's a, that's a good
1: question. What's the effect of cold on inflamed fascia? Uh, there's been this debate in therapy: is heat better or cold better? That's been going on for a long time and it's not really resolved yet. And so, it's a good question. What's the effect of cold? Is it a dose response? You know, is more cold have more of an effect than less cold? Maybe, maybe not. And, but the question is, what are you measuring? What can you measure? Range of motion, pain, function, put some catheters in and diffuse some fluid in and measure inflammatory markers, There's a whole range of things you can measure, from very specific physiological to patient outcome to function. And again, with any research project, research is not strictly scientific. It's not logical, linear thinking. It can't be. And the reason is there's too many things to research. You have to make an intuitive choice about which ones you're going to pick. Every scientist does that. Some scientists don't know they're intuitive, but they all are. Body workers think they're intuitive, but they do a hypothesis every time somebody comes in the office. So they're doing science. So the, the bridge is not as, as wide as we think between the two camps. So what you're doing with the study is you've got to decide. <coughs> Where am I going to get the most bang for the buck? Where am I going to find something that's going to change as a result of my measure? So when you do a measurement, it varies. Even if the, the real measure doesn't change, the actual measure will vary every time you do it. There's a random fluctuation. Now, my weight actually does vary a little bit from day to day. but if I get on a scale, and I weigh it, and my weight is exactly the same, it's gonna be slightly different depending on how good the scale is. Now most scales are pretty good, so they don't vary very much. You know, that's what you know, the standards for scales are. I mean, that's why you put known weights on them to see do they give the same result every time. They used to be not so good, but they're, they're pretty good now. So the measurement of weight is pretty stable. It doesn't vary very much. So if you get a change in weight, it's probably a real change height is the same thing. You can measure height pretty well. So if you get a change in height, you're seeing a change. So the standard deviation of the measure without any intervention, you need to know. In other words, how much is this measurement going to fluctuate when I've changed nothing? (coughs) And how much am I going to change the measure in relation to the standard deviation am I going to get? Half a standard deviation change, and I get one standard deviation change. And in statistics, we call anything that gets one standard deviation change is a large effect. About 60% of a standard deviation is a medium effect, and 30% is a small effect. It can still be quite significant, but it's called a small effect. Clinically, we're looking for large effects. A large effect takes about 15 subjects per group. doesn't take very many. 15, one five. Subjects. Right. Total 30 subjects, large effect, you found it, you're done. It's not, not a lot. There aren't a lot of large effects out there. Most of what you're looking at is the medium, 60%. That can take two or 300 subjects. The small effects, public health, it's, it's quite important to know small effects when you're dealing with millions of people. Because whether this flu vaccine is better than this flu vaccine, it makes a difference. But it's a small effect. So now you've got to study you know, thousands of people to get a small effect. When we're talking about subtle effects in our patients, if they are small effects, you're never going to be able to measure and improve it. You're only going to, so go for the big ones. That's my advice. Don't, I mean, don't, don't bother wasting your time on the subtle small effects. Go for the large ones, the ones where you think you're going to see a big, big change. Go for a measurement that's as good as possible. Refine that measurement. Find a measurement that's as, as narrow and as precise as possible because then the change in the measure is less compared with the change with your treatment. And by and large, don't invent a new measure. Use somebody else's, where they've already published information on the measure. So you can say, well, in my hands, I found it very this much, but so-and-so found it very this much, and this is the reliability and validity of this measure. That's what reviewers look for. Are you using a well-established measure? Don't pull one out of your hip pocket. an Sleep, the upward sleep scale. Well established, it's a questionnaire. You know, there's data on it, and it's been used on thousands and thousands of people. So use it. You know, don't invent your own questionnaire about how well did you sleep. Use it. That's a good example. But if patients sleep better, their whole life quality is better, so use the S F 36. That's the standard medical outcomes measure that's been used in millions of people. I have data on a million veterans, their SF 36 scores. So I can look to see, how does the veteran's function relate to people who have had a left-sided stroke? And there'll be you know, 10,000 of them in the database, right? Pull it out and say, OK, these people scored this way. So any standard measure like that, you go into the literature, you'll find other studies on it so you can compare your population with somebody else's. So that's, that's, that's a good example. Yeah?
3: very powerful uh, in the spirit of collaboration here that uh, to have a biostatistician who's familiar with your area uh, in your planning of your designs if you have a clinical question they'll keep you in check of breaking it down what's the actual statistical research question that will appeal to the scientific community and uh, if it's well prepared beforehand uh, it saves you a lot of time afterwards with all of your data if you keep on meeting up and work with your proposal work with the biostatistician on your proposal, uh, they'll come up with some things uh, that uh, may be new to you in terms of statistical analysis that uh, might help your clinical question, help uh, translate it into the uh, scientific uh, vocabulary, I guess you could say, to appeal to the other people around the world. Otherwise, it might be just more confusing to
1: have uh, your own way of doing statistics. Okay. Yeah. Uh,
3: statistics
1: is a specialty. Research is a specialty. I don't intend to teach you either one of those, but I intend to teach you enough to know that you need to collaborate with someone who knows how to do those. Just as I wouldn't get my appendix taken out by a general surgeon, necessarily, or by someone who's not even a surgeon. I mean, yes, physicians are licensed to do surgery, but I want a specialist. If I needed something, I want a specialist. If you need statistics, you need a specialist. So yeah, you you, do need. But on the other hand, you need to understand enough about statistics to ask the right questions. And so the interchange, you need to be a good consumer of statistical advice. Now, so as you're designing your study, fake your data on three people. Write down what you think you would find on three people. Analyze it. Whoops, how am I going to analyze it? Well, write your program to analyze that data. If you can't write your program to analyze the data, why collect it? Same thing goes after you collect data on the first three people. Analyze it. You're not going to do anything with it. You're just making sure the analysis will work that your data is input in the correct form, that it's translated in the right statistical program, and that you've worked with your statistician to know what to analyze. Now, the program's already written. When you, all your data's in there, you just put run again, and your final analysis is done. But if you don't do that, if you wait to the end and find your statistician at the end, you'll find there's stuff you didn't collect that you needed. You can't collect it after the fact, so you have to kind of make your best assessment there. But yeah, you do need to, do need to find a statistician before you start. Yeah, for me. Questions? Yeah. Actually, those of us in the clinical field
3: tend to try it, to but it's not a question of putting all your eggs in one basket or you can put them in one at a time. you started with a few diabetes people and then you get that published, then it's gonna be easier to get the next one that's gonna be general so you can add more eggs that. So takes more time. But-
1: Right. Or, or you change the basket. In other words, if you can make a good case that you're looking at foot pain and that it doesn't matter height, weight, sex, nothing matters. fine. You've changed the basket. You change your definition of what's the basket. Uh, but if there are if there are patient demographic variables that might affect it, um, then you need, need to either control it by limiting to just males or just females or by including them in equal proportion or fixed proportion or by analyzing them separately. I mean there's all sorts of ways you can do it. Again, when you're thinking of your project you need to think what patient characteristics will impact the effect of my intervention and do I need to control for those before the project or after the project or, and, and this is why you randomly divide, is there's a lot of factors that will affect your outcome that you don't know about. And by just randomly assigning, you are hoping that they'll all get evenly divided between the groups. So that the patients who respond aren't in one group and the patients who don't respond are in another group. That's the whole idea behind randomization. However, if there are factors that you know are going to make an effect, hey, foot pain would be a good example. Before you randomize, your diabetics get randomized to treatment and no treatment, and the non-diabetics get randomized to treatment and no treatment. And that way you know, at least as far as diabetes goes, you got equal treated and non-treated. So it's called stratified randomization. So you need to think about which things are going to most likely affect your results. And do you control for it inherently in the design, or do you control for it in the analysis? And, and you, can, you, you can do either way, but, again, that's where the statistician can advise you in terms of what's the best way to handle your particular data. Yeah? Tom, so
4: you, you touched on something that's it's, it's been a question with me for quite some while. You said um, when you read a paper, you know, call a scientist and ask them to tell you about it on the phone. Now, in New Zealand culture, that's not a polite thing to do. The polite thing to do is to send an email first to see what would be a good time, you know, when would be a good time to make contact, and we particularly need to do that internationally, with time zones and things getting in the way. But what I've found over the past few years is when I send emails, uh, preliminary emails to academics in America, 99% of the time they don't reply. So, do you know how many emails a day? Yeah, but. Coming in, trying to make contact with people, I know they get a lot of emails, but it's like, how do we get around this? You send the an email
1: and then you call.
4: But we're working across time zones. I don't know if somebody's going to be out of the office. I don't know what's going to be a good time it's to call. It's actually
1: even better if they're not, because then you leave a voice message. Okay.
4: So that's the, the protocol of country. Mm-hmm. Well, no,
1: I'm just talking about. Yeah. The, it's not the protocol; it's the practical way of how you get through to yeah. people. Yeah. <laughs> but
4: it's not the same in different places.
1: Right, right. It's different so, in different places. Yeah. But and my point is that once you buttonhole a scientist, once you get them, you can talk to them. Yeah. And the approach to get to them is different. And if you know someone, you know someone. You know that always works a little better. So I think some museums
4: send 100 emails a day. Do you only write emails to one person? This isn't a problem. problem? that I line experiences along my friends and colleagues in museum experiences, and it drives us nuts. Um, so you know what is the is is really the way to get through
1: to you guys. Not the or only way, way but but it's a it's a very useful way, yeah.
4: yeah. So how do you
1: Or or a letter sometimes? Uh, we don't get a lot of letters.
4: Mm.
3: <laughs> <laughs> <So you laughs> <laughs>
1: just, just print your postal code very clearly. We don't understand your postal code <laughs> <laughs> But but your first contact should indicate you've read their paper and what your question is. Yeah. Okay. You have an interest in their work. Yeah. So what is in the subject
4: matter?
1: Absolutely, absolutely.
3: And if you write more than three paragraphs, your chance of a response in the first contact is almost zero. Yeah. So your chance of getting a response can be twenty percent, which is very high if you come with a brief brief question or announcement. Yeah. Okay. And if they then respond, you can send more. Okay. Thank you.
2: Yeah. I said
5: one more
3: question.
2: You had said that you should get four people no. involved. So one is the the Uh, statistician is that how Mm -hmm. you say it? And then and then who are the other three?
1: Doesn't matter. (laughs) It really doesn't matter as long as they're interested in the project.
2: But I mean like like we've got HSS hospitals for special surgery we've got a couple of like they now have melt on their brochure for their PTs and so we're trying to get um, Metzler uh, to uh, you know get on board because he keeps sending people to us and so the question is like how do I get him to then do a study, if he's the scientist who's like, or I mean the, the uh, doctor who's like super busy, he's not, I mean, Dr. Metzel's not just gonna right. take time out of his schedule to do a study, but then who are they? Are they clinicians I'm
3: looking for?
1: Is there other scientists? It doesn't matter. You need a team. Now, in, a, in any team, you need different resources available, but they can come in different combinations. And I'm saying you, obviously there'll be different disciplines you need to cover in a team, but what I'm saying is basically four live bodies with different skills. And the reason is the interaction is important. You need a network. You need a network of three at all times, which means you have to have a fourth for a spare. That's my point. And I've seen hundreds of projects develop, and some go forward, and some fail. And that's my general rule: is if you've got four people, it goes forward. If you got three, you might. If you got two, it goes down the twos. And I, I like I, I've tried to figure out is there a pattern. It's just a number. Yeah. yeah um,
5: I have been working with rheumatic patients for the last one years. I have a program that we do with uh, the Swedish Social Security. So they come to Spain and we work with them. And I have data of about 2,000 patients different. And um, when I was these days putting some of the information, I found that all the Becherev people, they have high blood pressure, all of them, the ones that I have. There was no one without either uh, male or female. so. Um, It was just in my computer, the information. So uh, it was not a data that I was just uh, thought that I could find, so. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) So the thing is that if any of you are working with rheumatic patients, I like to uh, just keep in touch with me and Send me your info, or especially if, just if you could track the Besharev one, Mor, Morbus Besharev, if they have high blood pressure. I don't know what to do with this information, but I maybe could be interested if it's related to the posture or is related to uh, the illness itself. <laughs>
1: Now, uh, what I what I challenge you is: there's lots of intriguing questions. What does high blood pressure have to do with fashion? There's an answer. What does hydrotherapy have to do with high blood pressure? pressure in the tissue, but also heat. Heat dilates the veins, which decreases the afterload on the heart. Heat is very good for cardiac patients. Although, again, you'll see contraindications for heat. It's cardiac. Wrong. Heat's very good for cardiac. Uh, you just have to know the physiology behind it, and you don't want to heat ischemic tissue Beyond the capacity of blood to go into it, because now you've increased the metabolic demands and you can't supply the blood, so then, then there is a problem that way. So you have to look at it that way. But, but the, the vascular system probably relates to the fascial system. Um, we know that there are now some direct myofibril connections between the muscle and the arteriole. So there are fascial connections into the arterioles that control the local blood flow to muscles. So are those connections atrophied as a cause of hypertension? I don't know. There's also some good evidence in, again, Christopher Moyer's study that manual massage therapies lower blood pressure. They increase heart rate variability. So, yes, blood pressure is an interesting thing. It's not just, oh, they happen to have blood pressure, but the kinds of manual work I do may actually affect some of the dynamics there. And if you can understand not just the, the final number, but what's the dynamic in between that you're affecting, you may actually have some, some influence on it. We know that blood pressure is a major factor in healthcare costs. The higher your blood pressure, the more you're going to cost the healthcare system. If you can control it, you may control the cost, you may control the hospitalization. Yeah. In any patient? I don't know exactly in every patient, but on the average you see an increase in heart rate variability with manual therapies.
3: <clears throat>
1: because I thought it is also depending on the basic state of the patient. who is coming in. a stress station? Or? Of, course, of course it depends on the basic state, but you, whatever the patient comes in in a basic state at this level, and they're going to go to this level. If they come in here, they're going to go here. Yeah, and then the studies are pretty clear that heart rate variability can be affected by manual therapies. And again, the studies are also clear that patients with lower heart rate variability, higher health care costs, higher mortality, you know, more heart attacks, all sorts of things, bad things happen when your heart rate variability. Patients who are diabetic lose mm-hmm. their heart rate variability. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's 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 an intermediate. We don't know why necessarily it's related, but it's definitely related to a lot of outcomes. Questions?
0: Those who want to know more about it come to the
3: presentation of Christopher Gordon, who also has his
0: colleague in the new
1: destinations. And how would everybody do? You're not wanting to have another research Right. So, so um, there are a few clinicians and a few researchers who have actually volunteered to help clinicians define their research projects a little better. Um, we seek those out when you submit your abstracts for the Fashion Research Congress. Uh, those of you who submitted abstracts last time got letters back from Peter Hying saying, hmm, I like this, I don't like that, where's the data on here? He read every single abstract you submitted. Uh, and most people got feedback. And those who responded to the feedback in a satisfactory way got in, and those who Didn't. Didn't. So he was very, very critical. It's very unusual for a conference to actually get that attention to the abstract. Uh, But there are others uh, who have indicated willingness to me to to work with some clinicians on developing projects. But that's the whole idea behind uh, a FASTA research interest group, is to start to share resources, to put some ideas out there. Uh, I've got more ideas than I know what to do with I'm happy to give them away. (laughs) <laughs> Here's a hypothesis I know to be true, but I haven't proved it yet. Anybody else who wants it, take it and run with it. Um, and then there are people who like to work, but don't have ideas. So if we can start to match people up uh, with, the, with the internet and the exchange of ideas, you know, it doesn't have to be in, in your same town. Uh, and that's an important concept that I want to get across. with So I've been an hour. We said I had
0: an hour. Uh, We could go on, but uh, I guess it'll be the next conference where we continue. Thank you for listening to another episode of Body Talk. Any questions, questions for me, questions for our guest, send me an email. BodyTalkDavid at gmail.com. Or you can use the Anchor app and send me a voice memo. How cool is that? I'm David Lasondack. Join me next week. When we continue to explore your inner universe on Body Talk.